Go back to Luke, to, not to Luke, to Philippians chapter 2, and I want to uh, continue and conclude a message that we started on last Sunday evening, and tonight is bittersweet. Uh, we're entering next Sunday into a new phase of our, of our ministry and a new step of growth, Lord willing, and I hope that you, good to see new faces here tonight, and I, I hope that these and many more will come on Sunday nights to our faith group, and yet I love our Sunday evening time together, and, and, um, and even this morning, somewhat bittersweet, but didn't God give us a marvelous service this morning, a wonderful service, and my heart was encouraged, and all that God is doing, we give Him the glory for it, but this is another step in making room and reaching more people, and so we're excited about the future, and you always go into these times with mixed emotions but uh, reminding you where we are in Philippians chapter 2, I've entitled this, this message, We Not Me. And it is really a message from the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church at Philippi. Remember, he is writing from a prison in Rome. So he is separated from these people that he loves deeply, dearly. And he writes back to them a challenge, not any doctrinal challenge, because they were a strong church. They were... A healthy church, but his challenge to them is in regards to unity. And I want to speak to that and finish our message that we started on last week. So I'm going to read together for us verses 1 through 5 of Philippians chapter number 2, where Paul writes, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, uh, fulfill ye my joy that ye be in circle or underline or highlight a few words here like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Then let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. And thank you, God, for what you did in our hearts and in our midst this morning. Thank you, Lord, for those that you're adding to the church. Thank you for those who uh, were baptized this morning and for uh, the babies that were dedicated. And, Lord, for our children that sang and blessed our hearts through their music this morning. Just our hearts were encouraged. And, Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing. And even as we enter this new phase uh, we thank you for the need to be able to make changes, and we thank you, God, as I did just in my private time this afternoon, for the unity and the oneness of mind and heart that you have given our congregation through this time. As a leader, it blesses my heart and encourages my heart, and uh, Lord, I thank you for it. I don't take it for granted. I realize that it could be very different. And so I praise you and I thank you for that and pray, Lord, that you would guide us and direct us into this new phase, into the days ahead. And Lord, we promise for all that you do to give you glory and honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wanted to remind you, I gave this statement last week and I wanted to give it again tonight because it's such a powerful statement and um, it, it, it is so fitting for where we are in our life and, and as a church, and some of you may not have been here last Sunday night, but William Barclay said this about this passage and about unity and about a healthy church and 
if we're not careful to guard it, how disunity can easily slide into a passionate, healthy church. And he puts it in such a wonderful way. He says, there's a sense in which disunity is a great danger in every healthy church. It's when people are really earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, when they are eager to carry out their own plans that they are most apt to get up against each other, the greater their enthusiasm and passion, the greater the danger that they may collide. And again, I say this, there, there are no problems of disunity that I am aware of in our church. In fact, quite the opposite. As, as I said in my prayer, I'm extremely thankful for the, the unity that God has given us going through this. Um, in fact, it to me is one of the very special things about our church. I think that it's what attracts people to our church is the unity that they sense and they feel and they see when they come into this building. And so in these five verses, Paul gives a formula for spiritual unity. He lays out the practical steps for unity. I think we'd all agree we want unity, right? But he lays out the practical steps for that. And it seems like, as the leader, that he is seeing some potential problems. He perhaps sees the change. He's not there with them at the moment. He's in prison. And so they're going through change. They're going through some difficulty. And perhaps he sees some things ahead. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4, several chapters later, he says this in verse number 2. I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, if you are having your name called out in Scripture, this is not the way you want it called out. <laughs> for, it to be, for it to be inspired through all of time that you uh, were not unified. So he calls out these two ladies and says that they need to be in the same mind in the Lord. And he pleads for unity in chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, and now he gives the practical steps for it. And we started this last week by saying that in verses 1 and 2, he gives the encouragement for unity, the, the why. Why should we give priority to unity? The motivation behind the unity. And of course, we know this, that it's not in the text, but we know it from other passages in Scripture that it ought to be important to us because of Jesus' own love for the church and his own desire for the church, as Brother Bong mentioned this morning, to, to be one as the Trinity is one. But here in the text, he, he tells us that we should have unity because we are appreciative for all that Christ has done for us. And so he says in verse number one, because we have received encouragement from Christ, and the word if there, it doesn't mean maybe you have and maybe you haven't. If you have received it and maybe you have or maybe you haven't, it doesn't mean that. It means since. And we can all give testimony. We have been blessed by the encouragement of Christ. We have been helped by the consolation of love. And so he says, because we have received the consolation of love, because we have received the fellowship of the Spirit, because we have received compassion and affection. He's really asking this question, are you willing to take all of these things from Christ? Are you willing to take the encouragement and the love and the fellowship and the affection and the compassion from Jesus, but not willing to give back unity that, to that which he loves, the church? And so he calls here for a response of appreciation to God. And then 
he adds one more quick motivator in verse number two. And as I mentioned last week, it's really kind of an add-on to the other one. And that is that in his absence, that it would bring great joy as the spiritual leader to his heart to hear of their unity. So our reaction of appreciation should be uh, a great determination to keep unity in the church. That's the encouragement of unity. Then we see, secondly, the explanation of unity, also in verse number two. And this answers the what. What does unity look like? We, we want it. We're committed to it. We understand that's what Christ wants. But, but what is it exactly? And he gives here three explanations that kind of overlap, but he, he uses some great terminology. He says you need to be like-minded. And he calls for them to be unified in their their thinking, a oneness of attitude, common concern, common understanding. And Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians uh, that, that being able to do this is a sign of spiritual maturity, spiritual growth, as we're able to come to the place of unity and not allowing disunity to enter and being like-minded, having the same ultimate goal in mind, that this is a sign of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is marked by unity and by a selfless attitude. So he says, let's have mature thoughts. Let's have selfless thoughts. Let's have spiritual thoughts. Then he gives this powerful text in Colossians 3, beginning in verse number 12, where he says, put on therefore as the elect of God, put these things on, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, which is the word for compassion, the phrase for compassion, Put on compassion, put on kindness, put on humbleness of mind, put on meekness, put on long-suffering, put on forbearance one for another, put on forgiveness one for another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, put on charity, love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. These are the attitudes that lead to congregational unity. Let me ask you, in your home, how many of you like unity and peace in the home? We do, and we fight for it, don't we? We, we give up things for it. I didn't say we, we fight each other for it. I mean, we protect it. We guard it. That, maybe that's a better word. We guard it. We, we set aside many times our own interest, our own desires. We prefer our spouse. We prefer other people in the home. And that's the mindset at which we should look at the family of God as well, that we prefer one another. So he says, be like-minded. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. These are the attitudes that lead to congregational unity. And then he says, not only to be like-minded, but have the same love. Um, Love everyone the same. Don't don't allow favoritism to creep its way into the church. Talks about that in Romans 12, 1 John chapter 3, which we talked about last week. So unity comes in our diversity when the word of God dwells in us. When we are immersed in the word of God. And we are walking under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and not our flesh. And when that happens, we can be of the same mind. Doesn't mean we're all alike. Doesn't mean we all like the same things. Doesn't mean that at all. It means we're all of the same purpose. We're all of the same mind. We're all of the same goal. 
and we come together with like-mindedness and the same love, love for our brothers and sisters. And when this supernatural, and I will say that it is supernatural, it doesn't happen in and of ourselves, but when this supernatural thing happens, when these diverse people from all over come together and they're unified, then what does it become? It becomes a beautiful witness to the, the world, to lost people, that this is what Christ can do in your life. This is what Christ can do in a, a body of believers who are all of one heart and one mind. And then he says here, one accord, one mind, just kind of recapping the other things. And then tonight I want you to see two other things. The third thing is this, the enemy of unity. The enemy of unity is given to us in verses 3 and 4. And maybe, if it's not in your notes, to write there, selfish ambition, because that is the great enemy of unity. So he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Notice the word strife there at the beginning. It says, let nothing, let nothing, that's a key word too, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. And the word strife refers to a, a designated class spirit. I'm of this stripe. I'm of that stripe. Let nothing be done with that kind of mentality in mind. As a spiritual army, and that's what we are, aren't we? As a spiritual army in the midst of spiritual warfare, how vitally important it is for us to identify the enemy of a unified congregation. And yes, Satan fights against us, and he is in the world fighting against the church of God. But I would say that in most churches, he does not have to do a whole lot of personal fighting because our flesh and our selfish ambitions often take care of what he would like to do in the church, and that is to bring disunity. So selfish ambition, what, what fuels selfish ambition? What fuels selfish ambition? What we've been talking about a lot in our study in Mark chapter 10, it's pride. Pride. Proverbs 13, 10, listen to this verse. Only by pride comes contention. Contention in the home, what's generally the root of it? Pride. Contention in the church, what's usually the root of it? Pride. Only by pride comes contention. Mark it down. Harmony happens through humility. You want harmony? You want it in your home? You want it in the church? It comes through humility. Unity demands slaying the giant of selfishness that is in all of us. Selfish ambition will destroy a marriage, and selfish ambition will destroy a church if it's allowed to. There's always a lurking danger of spiritual, spiritual selfishness even within the church, not just physical selfishness, spiritual selfishness. You know, what are you talking about? I'm talking about sometimes we like to spiritualize our selfishness, like our favorite ministries. Our favorite classes. And if we're not careful, we even spiritualize it. And probably most of us have experienced this, that there are classes or there are groups 
and, and the church is growing and things are happening and they don't want you to touch their class. They don't want you to touch their space. They want you to have hands off. Ours is the most important. Well, that becomes a problem in the church, doesn't it? It creates a, a click in the church. It's this mentality, everything else should fall into place behind this ministry because this is the most important ministry. Don't fall into that trap. Let us be careful not to spiritualize selfishness. A selfishness that calls for our own way, even within the, in the church. And this was the problem in the church at Corinth that Paul addresses. Because when disunity comes in and, and it's there in the church, it creates a surrounding where we start to pick our favorite personalities. Well, this person gives ear to our concern or Pastor Josh doesn't listen to what we have to say, so I am of Matt. He listens to me. I am of Wes. He's full of compassion. I, I am of Brian. He likes music and worship. I'm of Pastor Josh, but I don't want to talk to anybody except for Pastor Josh. This is a problem. This is what this spirit does within the church. And it seems subtle at first, but it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. This is what was happening. He says, I, I say, now say this, that every one of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. In our, in our church, I'm of Matt, I'm of Andrew. I mean, he's hip. I mean, he's got a new suit on today. Look at him. I identify with him. Don't give me the old fogey. But we see this. It can happen so easily. And then Paul says this, is Christ divided? It, whose church is this? Christ's church. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? <laughs> or were, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Selfishness can supersede our common purpose. And when that happens, jealousy rises and then strife and conflict arise. And then the loss of unity is the result of that. And then what happens? Then the world looks in at the church and goes, you're no different than we are. You can't get along either. We don't want what you have. We don't need what you have. See how this is dangerous. And Satan is very aware of it. So he says, guard against this great enemy. How do you do that? In lowliness of mind, mark it down, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Unity is born out of humility. Humility of mind is regarding one another as more important or superior to yourself. We all know, know the name William Booth founded the Salvation Army. They were having, in William Booth's later years, they were having a big convention. All the people, supporters, people that were a part of the organization. They're having a big convention, and they wanted William Booth to come and to give a speech. His health would not allow him to come and give a speech. And so they asked if, if, they would, if he would send them a telegram. They would read it if he would just send them what he wanted 
to convey to the people, to stir them up, to encourage them, to help them. And when they opened the telegram, it was one word. The speech was one word. Anybody know what it was? Others. Others. Charles Meg said this, Others, Lord, yet others. Let this my motto be, Help me to live for others that I might live for thee. Others is what will keep a family together. Others is what will keep a church together. You ever think about how did the Apostle Paul, who God used in such an incredible way to lead the first century, century church, how did he stay humble? How did he see himself as the chiefest of sinners? That's what he calls himself. How did he see himself, Brother Steve, as the least of the apostles? I mean, in our minds, how many of you would say he looks like the greatest of the apostles? I mean, he wrote much of the New Testament that we have. He's probably, in my mind, the greatest missionary that ever walked the planet. But, but let me suggest to you that perhaps the key to understanding and the, the key to being humble in that situation is realizing that I can only know and see my own heart. I can make assumptions about your heart. I can make assumptions about what's in your heart. But I only know my own heart. Sometimes our, our spouse may think they know what we're thinking. And they don't. And that's frustrating. The only thing that's more frustrating is when they think they know what's in our mind and heart, and they really do. That's even more frustrating. But the truth is, and, and even my own heart deceives me, but I know my own heart more than I know any. I can guess. I can assume and make assumptions about you, and we all do that from time to time, don't we? But there is one heart that I know is desperately wicked, and that is mine. To me, based on the facts that I have, I am the chiefest of sinners in this room. Based on the facts, I am the least of the people in this room. My heart is the worst heart I know, and your heart is the worst heart you know. This would solve a lot of disunity if we carefully examined our own selves more than we examined others. And if we gave others the benefit of the doubt instead of always giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt. It is this attitude that Paul says puts out the fire of disunity, conflict, and competition of ministries and spiritual gifts and significance have no place in the church. C.S. Lewis which many of you have probably read after he was a brilliant and gifted British writer. One of his books, one of his works is called The, the Screwtape Letters. Anybody ever read The Screwtape Letters? Screwtape was his name for the devil himself. And in his book, he imagines Screwtape the devil speaking to his nephew. His nephew was a demon and his name was Wormwood. 
And Wormwood was Screwtape's favorite recruiter on earth for him to go and to accomplish what Satan, what the devil really wanted to accomplish. And, and what Screwtape is trying to do is to get division in the church, in the book. And here's what he says to Wormwood in that book. The church is a fertile field. If you just keep them bickering over details, over structures, over organization, over money, over property, over personal hurts and misunderstandings, then you will succeed. The one thing you must prevent, don't ever let them look up and see the banners flying. For if they ever see the banners flying, you have lost them forever. Just keep them on these details. In other words, if you can keep them away from their purpose, if you can keep their minds away from focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ and reaching their community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you can get them busy building committees and arguing about their different opinions about structures and buildings and how we should spend money and all of this sort of thing, if you can just get them focused on those things and keep them on those details, then you will succeed. Just don't ever let them see the banners flying. Don't ever... Let them see their purpose of why they really exist. How many of you know that we need to know the tactics of the enemy in order to defeat the enemy? And this is his greatest enemy within the church, no doubt about it. More churches have been destroyed by disunity than any, anything else. Yes, they are hurt sometimes destroyed by moral failure and other things, but more churches are destroyed, or let me say this, ineffective because of disunity than any other thing. So lastly, and we're done, he gives us the example of unity. The encouragement for unity, the explanation of unity, the enemy of unity, the example of unity. And now Paul is asking for unity, and he gives us this illustration of what he's talking about. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in, and here is our example, Christ Jesus. We gave the scripture earlier this morning, so I won't give it again, but he goes on to explain how that's fleshed out in Jesus leaving heaven and coming to this earth and humbling himself and dying for our eternal salvation. As a church, listen, we have the highest model of selflessness as our example. Jesus Christ himself. This is the attitude that Paul says that we need to ensure unity. And this is what we need to understand. It's an attitude. It's a heart matter. It's the attitude of Jesus who did nothing from selfishness, who did nothing from empty conceit. With humility of mind, he emptied himself and became a servant to mankind. And if we are willing, if we are willing through our free will that God has gifted with us, we can humble ourselves and we can have the mind of Jesus Christ. We can come together. 
And that means that Jesus' mental and moral attitudes will be ours supernaturally through the Spirit of God. He is our example. And Paul's talking here about being unified in our hearts and our minds, right? Be like-minded. Having the same mind. So it's, it's a oneness of heart and mind. It's not just being unified because we're under the same roof. You might say, we're unified, we're all here together. But just because we're all here in one place doesn't mean that we're unified. For example, this bag of marbles, you might say that they're together, they're unified. But what's, what's keeping them unified? This bag is. I mean, if I open the bag, take away the exterior, they're, all, they're not unified anymore. They're all over the place. This is what was keeping them unified. But when you are unified in heart and mind, it's not, it's not just an external thing that's keeping you unified. Because there's marbles in here too. And if I open this bag, they all stay together because there is something internal that is keeping them together. In fact, there's an internal force that's keeping them together. And listen, this building can go away tomorrow and we can still be unified. It's not a, it's not a structure Just because we come together and meet together doesn't mean we're unified. But if we will allow something of an internal force to bring us together, then we'll stay unified no matter what what exterior thing is around us. Thank you, guys. Is that my five-minute warning? I'm almost done, I promise. What I'm saying is it's the force of the Holy Spirit of God. It's, it's the force of what is in each and every one of us as his believers that should hold us together, that should bring us together. 